good morning tea party take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that will be our foundational verse throughout this series we have a lot to unpack over the next few weeks And I realize that our time change here in the USA, you do not have the same time change. We over here wish we didn't have to go through this every year. It's stupid, it's silly, and nobody wants to do it. And I appreciate you getting up earlier this particular morning. But uh, we're going to... uh, test the waters, so to speak, to see if uh, we need to change time next week so you won't be so sleepy heads. (laughs) 6.30 in the morning, I'm a sleepy head. God bless you. This is Mystic Guide. You're listening to Enlightenment Radio. Tonight's teaching, Jesus Christ, our Passover. Easter, the resurrection, what does it mean? Why is it celebrated? What separates Jesus Christ from everyone else, from Buddha, from Confucius, from Muhammad, from all the others? What is it? You can listen to us on uh, our app, Android and Apple and on podcasts on Spotify and our website is themysticalvoyage.com where you can read our book Christ in a Mystery and a lot of this is covered in the chapter chapter uh, seed God and family So, why is Easter celebrated, and what is Easter? All of these questions, there's a lot of stories and myths and, how shall I say, contradictions or apparent contradictions, especially about the last week of Jesus Christ's life, and especially about How can you, for instance, how can you say that he was buried dead and buried three days and three nights? And when he was crucified on Friday and got up Sunday morning, that doesn't add up to 72 hours. You see, there are many things that are tradition. They start off guessing, misinterpreting, and it becomes tradition, then they think it becomes the truth. Our goal here at Enlightenment Radio is to separate tradition from truth. In any event, I could spend a lot of time on that subject right there. But we're going to Come to the place where you know that you know that you know exactly 
exactly what happened that last week of Jesus Christ's life, why he is a called our Passover, why is he separated among all the others, why God chose him, why God chose Mary, why that particular time, everything. And by the time we reach the end, you are going to be amazed at God's timing and everything he has gone through since the beginning of time to bring us to this moment. And God did everything. Time means nothing to him, but timing is everything. Is everything. So, Easter, my headphones just blew off. Easter is only mentioned in the King James Bible version. So, uh, in Acts 12.4, modern versions like the NIV, ESV, NASB, and even the New King James Version all correctly use the word Passover. Passover was an annual observance of the original Passover meal the Jews ate just before their departure from slavery in Egypt in Exodus 12. The original meal was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would come as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Easter, on the other hand, is a holiday that came down through recent history from Western European paganism. It is associated with the spring equinox when the daylight hours increase and new life in nature springs forth. Our modern Eastern includes Motifs of eggs and rabbits as part of a celebration because of the focus on fertility and the holiday's pagan roots. As with many of the pagan holidays, Easter became Christianized over time and today is commemorated as the time of Jesus' death, burial, and in particular, his resurrection. Christians all over the world celebrate Easter Sunday as a special day. Romans 14 lays out the proper Christian perspective in regard to food and drink and special days. It says, starting in verse 5, that one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Under the Mosaic Law, there were many feasts and the Sabbath days that the Jews were required to observe. After some of the Jews converted to Christianity, they continued to observe the Sabbaths in light of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. They were now free from observing those days through the accomplishments of Christ because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the Mosaic law through his death and resurrection. Still, some of the Jewish converts continued to observe the Sabbath as a special day in light of their history and the sacrifice of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible does Paul teach to the Gentile converts to observe the Sabbath, but he is instructing them not to judge a brother or a sister in Christ because they are now regarding the Sabbath as a special day to the Lord. When we acknowledge Easter as, a spe as special because of the resurrection of Christ, 
we are doing so to honor the Lord, and that is in accordance with Scripture, and it's not a sin. Okay, so if you plant out your eggs and your children have fun on that day, it's not a sin, it's not uh, sacrilegious. Many Christians are aware of the word Easter does not occur in the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. As a matter of fact, the only place it can be found in English version of the Bible is the King James Version, like I just explained. This passage describes Herod's plan. Oh, wait a minute. Acts 12.4. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him, Acts 12.4, to four quartermans of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. This passage describes Herod's plan to have Peter put to death after Easter. The Greek word for Easter is Pasha, which refers to the Jewish Passover festival, celebrated from the 14th to the 21st of Nisan. Exodus 12:18. The month of Nisan in Hebrew is usually April. In the case of the King James Version, it seems that the Acts of the Apostles had fallen into the hands of a translator who acted on the principle of choosing not the most correct but the most familiar equivalents. Number one, in this case, the fact that Easter was familiar to the 17th century readers explains how the word got into the King James Version, but it does not help us understand that the Passover and Easter are two different things. And what that what Acts refers to is the Passover, not Easter. Modern versions of the Bible all translate Pasche as Passover. What we know today as Easter festival developed after the New Testament period. The New Testament does not mention a Christian festival in which the death and resurrection of Christ were celebrated. But what we do see is that some of the earliest Christians continued to hold the Passover feast. As late as Paul's trip to Jerusalem in which he was arrested and jailed, which was in the late 50s A.D., or 30 years after the birth of the Christian church, many Christians in Jerusalem were proud of the fact that they kept the law. Acts 21.20 when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, Ye see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law? Isn't that the same today? We've been presented with the grace of God, but they are still zealous to be put under the law. How profound. It was common for these zealous Christians to maintain their adherence to the law by observing the Passover feast, which became a feast of commemoration. It was no longer a time of waiting for future atonement with God, but of remembering that he had provided the payment for the sins of his people through Christ. This was a very sensitive topic for early Christians because not all Jews who converted to Christianity were comfortable with the idea that Christ had filled all the law.
The church epistles later given by the Lord to Paul made clear that participating in the Jewish feast was no longer necessary. You see, they were just still zealous for the law. They felt like if they didn't keep the law, keep the Passover, they might still not be saved. So many people think they have to fulfill so many laws today, to this day, in order to be saved. Paul had ruffled a few feathers by teaching things like neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, Galatians 6.15. The charge that Paul was teaching converts to turn away from Moses put the whole city of Jerusalem in uproar and resulted in his arrest, his arrest Acts 21.21. While many Jews became Christians, retained the custom of keeping the Passover feast, it was likely that the Gentile converts would be attracted to keeping a festival that was not actually required by God. As Christianity began to spread through the ancient world, Gentile Christians began to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ in a less Jewish way. Unfortunately, as was often the case with Jewish-Gentile disputes, many of the forces guiding Christianity were radically opposite of those desiring to maintain the Jewish roots of Christianity. Eventually, the celebration and death of re and resurrection of Christ was infused with elements that have little to do with the Jewish feasts or the actual events of Christ's death. For centuries, the date of the celebration of the resurrection of Christ was hotly disputed. The earliest Jewish Christians, primarily those in Israel, Syria, and East, naturally wanted to celebrate on the 14th of Nisan, the date of the Passover. Churches in Asia Minor, following jo the Johannine tradition, that the death of Jesus occurred at the time of the slaying of the Passover lambs, celebrated the Christian Pasha on the 14th and 15th of Nisan, regardless of the day of week on which this date might fall. Two, this practice presented an interesting situation for the church. Those Christians who maintained that the Jewish date looked to the Jews to determine it in Judaism, the calendar is lunar. Each month, Nisan included, included or includes the phases of the moon and the Passover falls on the 14th day of the month. That is the full moon. The determination of this date was a sacred process, jealous, jealously guarded in the Jewish temple and later synagogues, and it was according to this calculation that Christ observed the feast. In order to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ on the actual Passover date for a given year, the church would have to rely on the Jews, something they were not willing to do. Not only would the church have to acquire the date from the Jews, but the fact that the 14th of Nisan could be on any day of the week did not appeal to them either. The Hebrew Passover falls on any day of the week, 
and this did not suit the Christians. They wanted a Holy Week beginning with Palm Sunday, proceeding to Good Friday, and ending on Easter Sunday, commemorating the resurrection. Those Christians who fought to celebrate Easter on the 14th of Nisan were known as Quarto Dissimanians, most of whom lived in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The Western Christians observed Easter on a Sunday. The Eastern, in many cases, were Quadrodissimanians and preferred the 14th of the lunar month. It was a foretaste of the schism that was to split the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church. Now you see the difference. The date of celebrating the resurrection was thus included amidst the great Christological controversies of the Council of Nicaea. When Jesus became God, <laughs> Richard Rubenstein describes the atmosphere of the Nicene Council. When Jesus became God, by the way, is a book written by Richard Rubenstein, and the Council of Nicaea was the uh, fabrication or the lie which they declared Jesus Christ as God. This is quoted from his book. One underlying question was this. To what extent were the values and customs of the ancient world still valid guides to thinking and action in a Christian empire? Some Christians, among them were Arius and Eusebius and Nicodemia, had a stronger sense of historical continuity than others. By contrast, the strongest anti-Aryans experienced their present as a sharp break with the past. It was they who demanded, in effect, that Christianity be updated by blurring or even obliterating the long-accepted distinction between the Father and the Son. The same spirit of breaking with the past, the council unanimously decided that the resurrection celebration would be not on the Jewish date, but would fall on the Sunday following the moon after the vernal equinox. Interestingly, the Sunday celebration actually still allowed for the possibility that the church would celebrate on the same day as the Jews. Once again, the East and the West handled the situation differently. The West established a rule that if the date matched the Jewish Passover, the church would wait another week to celebrate. Conversely, the East continued to celebrate even if the day coincided with the Passover. To this day, there is still disagreement concerning the date of the Easter celebration. The Protestant and Roman Catholic dates of Easter coincide, but due to a different method of calculation, the Eastern Orthodox Church observance can be up to five weeks different than the Western churches. Desire for Christian unity was in recent years brought forth the idea of a universal fixed date for all Christian churches. The pagan elements. 
It is no secret that much of the modern Eastern celebration is developed from pagan sources. The word Easter itself was essentially adopted by the church from paganism. The English word Easter and German Austern came from a common origin, Eoster or Ostrora, which to the Norsemen meant the season of rising, growing sun, the season of new birth. The word was used by our ancestors to designate the feast of new life in the spring. The same root is found in the name for the place where the sun rises. The word Easter then originally meant the celebration of the spring sun, which had its birth in the east and brought new life upon earth. This symbolism was transferred to the supernatural meaning of our Easter. Another common view taught by B.E.D.E., the English historian of the early 8th century, is that the word derives from Estre, a Teutonic goddess of spring who received offerings in the month of April. While both explanations are plausible, it is clear that the word Easter is anything but biblical. The Encyclopedia Dictionary of Religion states that the custom of Easter eggs may be based upon ancient fertility cults, Indo-European, the Persian association of eggs and spring, the fact that came early Christians abstained from eggs during Lent. It is not hard to see how Christians could have adopted the egg as a symbol of the tomb of Christ or even the new life in him. Further, the rabbit is pre-Christian and represents fertility due to its rapid rate of reproduction. The rabbit has not actually been adopted as part of the Christian celebration of Easter, but it has become a common symbol of the day of many cultures. Much like Christmas, the celebration of Easter has diverged greatly from the original remembrance of our Lord's death on the 14th of Nisan. Imagine telling your loved ones at Christmas, I'm sorry, I, I didn't give you gifts because I'm a Christian. Or on Easter, I don't celebrate the resurrection of the Lord on Easter because I'm not a pagan. Clearly, there is some level of absurdity that can be reached to trying to avoid all the non-Christian elements of our culture. For example, in an article published by the Restored Church of God titled The True Origin of Easter, the author correctly identifies the pagan elements, elements of the modern Eastern celebration. But we believe he goes too far in his zeal to avoid them. Concerning sunrise services, he states, observing sunrise services is serious to God. He so hates this vile practice that he will ultimately destroy all who persist it. Ezekiel 9. Can this be the same God who inspired the following scripture? 1 Corinthians 8, 7, and 8. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat or do not know better if we do. 
I'm just about to conclude this Easter celebration here. God has revealed that it is not an outward demonstration that he requires, but the inward dedication of the heart. We know that God did not raise Jesus from the dead on Sunday morning. It was actually Saturday between 3 p.m. and sunset. We're going to unpack that later and get to the details of how they arrived at that time. But does God not honor the hearts of people who trouble themselves to get up in the dark on Easter Sunday, get dressed and go gathering place to pray, sing, and affirm the resurrection of the Lord? Yeah, we believe he does. The Bible uses an interesting word to refer to our ability to relate to things it does not specifically mention. Freedom. <laughs> Remember, with freedom comes responsibility. It's not a sin to have Christmas tree or to hide some eggs out in the backyard for the children to find. Please understand, we're not saying that knowing the truth is not valuable, but we feel you can know the truth and still celebrate many modern customs. I understand you celebrated the other day uh, the celebration of color. I, I, I saw a picture of that. I thought that was interesting. That's not a sin, as long as you know who Jesus Christ is and the true God. He can know that Christ was crucified on the Jewish Passover, but still show his devotion to the Lord in a sunrise service. What we as Christians must do is to teach ourselves and others the true freedom that Christ has given us. Many Christians are very blessed to take the opportunity that Easter provides to honor the Lord and his resurrection, and we think that is just fine with God and the Lord Jesus. As we consider what honoring the Lord will look like this season, it may be helpful to remember the words of Paul in Romans. Romans 14, 5 and 6. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. God has given us freedom from all kinds of bondage. Remember that, people. You should never feel guilty because someone is pointing at you and say that's under the that's not lawful or that's out of bounds or God doesn't like that. We have the freedom that God has given us. It's called grace. Do not let the true meaning of this Easter season be lost to you in a secular sea of eggs and rabbits and chocolate, which early Christians did not have. But remember that much of the true meaning of the death and resurrection of the Lord is about the freedom we now have to celebrate that from our hearts and pray and sing to bless and honor him, even if we do it on a day that is not actually Passover. May we praise the Lord every day forever and ever. So that's basically a summation of how Easter came about and why we celebrate the birth and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Now for our basic need for a Savior. Why did we need Jesus Christ, our Passover, our sacrifice for us? What is the purpose of Jesus Christ? John, Jesus told Pilate when Pilate was getting ready to sentence him, he only said one thing. For this purpose came I into this world. Jesus Christ knew from the day he was growing up, reading the scriptures about himself, that he was going to be sacrificed and that he was a sacrificial lamb. That would be called the Messiah or the Anointed One in Genesis 3.15. How did we get to this place? Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, the verse in 1 Corinthians 5.7 that is our foundational verse is 5.7, which says in part 2 there, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That's our foundational verse. We're going to unpack this, what it means, and really get into the depth of it over the next few weeks. So Ephesians 2 declares this. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. People don't like hearing that. They don't like to be heard that they're born dead. What do you mean I'm born dead? They don't like hearing that. <clears throat> Let me go explain that a little further. That is to be spiritually dead. Well, how did we get spiritually dead? We're about we're gonna get there in a minute. To be spiritually dead is separated from God. Here it comes. When Adam sinned, Genesis 3 6, he ushered in death for all humanity. God's command to Adam and Eve was that they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It came with a warning that disobedience would result in death. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The phrase, you shall surely die, could be literally translated, dying you shall die. This signifies a continuous state of death that began with the spiritual death and continues throughout life as a gradual degradation of the body and culminates in physical death. 
The immediate spiritual death resulted in Adam's separation from God. His act of hiding from God, Genesis 3.8, demonstrates this separation, as does his attempt to shift the blame for sin to the woman. Unfortunately, the spiritual and eventual physical death was not confined to Adam and Eve. As a representative of the human race, Adam carried all of humanity into this sin. Doesn't sound fair, people, but it, this, is, this is how it works. This is how we had a need for a hero or a savior. Adam lost that spirit for us, and since that day, sin continued in the blood in every generation. Paul makes this clear in Romans 5.12. If you really want a clarification of how that worked, it's in Romans 5, telling us that sin and death entered into the world and spread to all men through Adam's sin. That's how I learned that the sin is in the seed. The life of the flesh is in the seed. The soul life is in the seed. So, thank you, Adam. <laughs> Additionally, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Sinners must die because sin separates us from God. Any separation from the source of life is naturally death for us. Let me add something to Romans 6.23. And the gift of God is eternal life. So, this is the separation, the death. He didn't immediately die that day, but that explains it pretty well. But it is not just inherited sin that causes spiritual death. Our own sinfulness contributes it. Ephesians 2, 2 teaches that, therefore, salvation we are dead in trespasses and sins. This must speak of spiritual death because we were still alive physically before salvation. While we were in that spiritual dead condition, God saved us. Verse 5, Romans, also Romans 5, 8, Colossians 2, 13, reiterates this truth. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all trespasses. Well, how is God going to forgive us of all our trespasses? This is part of the plan. This is part of the Passover picture, the big picture of what Passover is, how significant the crucifixion, the burial, death, and resurrection of Christ is. It's the big picture. Let me repeat that. The act of God makes us alive from spiritual death is called regeneration. Well, I don't believe in regeneration. It's actually born again. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we are born again. So, 
I'm going to take a station break here and be back momentarily. And we got more to continue in our Passover, in our discovery of what this Passover, the significance of it is. The music you are listening to is coming from Enlightenment Radio. Sound waves that lift your consciousness, enhance your mood, and transcends time and space. Visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com, where you'll be guided each level of transformation to become an enlightened one. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to get into the significance now of how we separate and signify and prove with evidence that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. We must put a lot of emphasis on God's foretelling. Only God can foretell. Fortune tellers can guess. Devil spirits can guess. The devil can guess. They can all guess, but they cannot foretell accurately. Only God can foretell. And there are so many prophecies in the Bible concerning the coming of the Messiah. I read to you from Genesis 3.15 after what God promised he would do. Let me read that again. Let me Before we go to Deuteronomy and Moses, let's go to Genesis 3.15. After Adam sinned and the devil tricked him into eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's not to say that he chose evil after he ate the fruit. Why would you assume that? I'd never assumed it. But Genesis 3.15 is a key verse. This is the first verse in the entire scripture telling of the coming or the telling us that there was a Messiah to come. Genesis 3.15 this is what God promised. I will put enmity between thee, that's Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's figures of speech there, basically, that when he comes, you're going to try to kill him but he's going to win 
and not let you win. That God had a plan. And that's the first mention that God had a plan. And this plan was magnificent. Now, to Deuteronomy, Moses foretells of this coming prophet, of this coming Messiah in Deuteronomy. And this is another another thing. How do uh, Trinitarians explain this verse? I do not know. Let me get my Bible, 18, Deuteronomy 18, and verse 15. And the Lord God, this is Moses. Moses, by revelation, he's prophesying here of the future. God's giving him what to foretell. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb. There's another place where I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put, oh, there it is, verse 18, I like this verse. Verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth. God put the words in Jesus Christ's mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Did Jesus Christ speak all that God commanded him? Yes. That's why he was the perfect hero, the perfect savior, the perfect sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice had to be a lamb of the first year. It had to be innocent blood, without blemish, without sin. So God here is prophesying, telling Moses that I will raise up a prophet and I will put my words in his mouth. In other words, when Jesus sat at the foot of the men accusing the woman of adultery. What shall we do for the law commands that we kill her? Jesus squatted down and circled in the dirt. He was receiving revelation from God what words to say. And he stood up and said, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away. You see, how do you, how do you go against the words of God? Jesus says, the words I speak are not mine, but the Father's. He said this over and over and over. I do not my will, but the will of the Father. This is why he was obedient to God. This is why he wasn't God. He was the Son of God. Look at Mark. Mark chapter 1 is the beginning of the story, but it's very simple. Mark, Mark lays it out very clear. 
the gospel writers told the story of the Messiah and the fulfillment. But he says, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Did he say God? No. He said the Son of God. God said, I will put my words in his mouth. Now, having gotten this far, now we know we have a need for a hero. What is this hero's mission and purpose? When he turned to Pontius Pilate, he said, for this purpose came I into this world. When John the Baptist started baptizing, God told him, the one whom you see the Spirit descend upon, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. Only John the Baptist knew this. So there came a day when John the Baptist baptized Jesus Christ. The Spirit came down from above, and lo and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. God was not a ventriloquist. <laughs> Jesus was not a ventriloquist. That was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when John heard that, he knew that he was the chosen of God. We are constrained for a little time tonight, but I'm going to go through by telling you the verses. And all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Let's stop and read a few. There's no sense in rushing this. Genesis 22:18. And in thy seed, talking to Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my word, my voice, the voice of God. Well, was Jesus not of the seed of Abraham? That's very important to the Jews. Numbers 24, 17, Jesus would be from the line of Jacob. Numbers 24, 17 prophesies that. Isaiah says, 11.1, 1, Jesus would be from the line of Jesse. And Jeremiah says Jesus would be from the line of David. Let's read Micah 5.2. These are all prophecies that came to pass, people. How can you foretell so many times over and over and fulfill all of those prophecies and not be the Son of God, the true prophet, that Moses said, a prophet I will raise among you, and I will put my words in his mouth. Micah, verse 5. Oh, I'm looking at Malachi. Well, let's just go to Micah 5, 2. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 14. We know from Isaiah that Jesus would be conceived of a virgin. 
Isaiah prophesied, verse 7. Let's look at Isaiah. Let's look at that. Isaiah, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign, a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a messianic name, meaning God with us. Even Jeremiah means God with us, but that doesn't mean Jeremiah was God. Emmanuel means God with us. It simply is a messianic name. Let's look at Psalm 72. Go back a book. Proverbs, Psalm, two books. Psalm 72, verse 10. Psalm 72, verse 10. Is that what I said? That's what I said. The kings of Teresh and the isles shall bring presents, and the kings of Shea, Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Did that not come to pass? Jesus was worshipped when he was born and given gifts at his birth. Jeremiah 31.15. I'm curious to see this verse. Jeremiah is right after Isaiah 31.15. You see all of these prophecies? You see the need for... What if there would have been no port foretelling and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says, I'm the Son of God and I'm going to do all of this and I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb? God is setting up the stage. He's setting up the plot, the narrative of each, and he's building up to this point. He's building up to the greatest week in the history of mankind. He's building up this big picture to save us, to free us from death and from sin through one man, his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you how this, you accomplish this. I'll unpack it later. You're probably wondering, well, how is Jesus without sin? How did Jesus accomplish this? Why did God set it up this way? We're all going to unpack this. It takes time. You can't do it in one night. We're going to go through all of this, and you'll have all your questions answered. And if you do have questions, I haven't looked at the chat room, but leave your questions. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Raphael weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. This is foretelling of King Herod, 
who would murder the children in an attempt to kill Jesus. That's what this is foretelling. Hosea 11.1, 1, Joseph would be warned to take Jesus to Egypt for a time to protect him. Remember that? That's prophesied. That's foretold. So when Caesar said uh, everyone has to go back to their place of birth and home, Joseph and Mary returned. That's why he was born there. But then there came a time when he was told by an angel, flee to Egypt to protect the child. That's foretold in Hosea. Let me go through a few others. In Psalm 40, Jesus could have also pointed the disciples on the road to Emmaus to these passages that spoke to what Jesus' life looked like. He could have reminded them of the actions he took, the words he spoke, the actions others took around him, and more. Here are the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled concerning his life ministry. Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice, Psalm 46 through 8. Psalm 78, 1 through 2. Jesus would teach using parables. Jesus would teach using parables. And he used parables a lot so that they, who were really seeking the truth, would seek the parables deeper and he would unveil it to them. He unveiled it to his apostles. The other people just didn't understand him or couldn't hear him. 1 Samuel 2.35, God would raise up a faithful priest. 2 Samuel 12-13, Jesus' kingdom would be eternal. Isaiah 6-9, those that heard Jesus' parables would not understand. Remember how many times they scratched their heads? What does he mean? Eating his flesh, eating his body, the bread from manna from heaven. They couldn't understand all this. The ministry of Jesus would begin in Galilee. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Isaiah has a lot of prophecies concerning Christ especially of the deep stripes he would suffer, how much he would suffer and be tortured by the Romans, by those who crucified him. Isaiah 43, verse 4, Jesus' ministry would be preceded by a voice calling in the desert. Well, who was that? Oh, John the Baptist. A voice calling in the wilderness or in the desert who was calling all to repent and be baptized, and almost all, it doesn't say almost all, it says all of Israel was baptized by water. It's in my book. I detail it. So it can't be talking about baptism in the book of Acts. They were already all water baptized. Water doesn't save anybody. I'll get into that later. Jesus' message of salvation, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, would also extend to the Gentiles. 
Isaiah 53.3, Jesus would be despised and rejected. Isaiah 53, I urge you all to read Isaiah 53. It foretells of his extreme torture and pain, suffering, and that he would be despised and rejected. Can you imagine just being mocked, the Son of God, spat upon, called all kinds of names, rejected? Isaiah 61.1, Jesus would be the anointed one. Jesus would be the anointed one to proclaim good news to the poor. That's when he walked into the, after his water baptism, he walked and it was filled with the Spirit. He walked into the temple, opened up the book of Isaiah, and proclaimed this day is fulfilled in your ears to heal the sick and the poor. Zechariah 9.9, the king would come riding on a donkey. Well, that's his entry into Jerusalem. Zechariah 11.13, Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> My Lord, people, how accurate these prophecies are. I'm going to send a link into the chat room if I can get over there, and I'll send you the link to all these prophecies, and you can look them up for yourself. The death and resurrection of Jesus are at the foundation of the gospel of Christ. The prophecies that Jesus fulfilled concerning his death and resurrection speak to validate the message he spoke during his years of ministry. These prophecies are ones that Jesus could have shared with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He could have reminded them of the horrors he faced in his torture, crucifixion, and death. He would have, ha he would have also reminded them of the glorious hope of his resurrection. Then there are some prophecies that Jesus fulfilled concerning his death and resurrection. In Exodus 12, Jesus would be the Passover lamb. In Exodus and Numbers, none of Jesus' bones would be broken. Did you know that? They were going around breaking the bones of the men on the cross to make sure they were dead. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't. Why? Because they knew he was dead. They pierced his side. Another prophecy fulfilled. Jesus would die and pour out his blood for the atonement of sins. That's Leviticus 17.11. Numbers 21.9. Jesus would be lifted up. That's his resurrection. Psalm 16.10. Jesus would not be abandoned to the dead. Remember that? Thou will not leave my soul in hell, Peter said. Psalm 22, 1, Jesus would be forsaking. Well, we knew who forsook him. Almost everyone, really. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen: Jesus' mouth would be dry. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced. Listen to this detail and prophecy. 
I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: Lots would be cast for Jesus' clothes. <laughs> My gosh, such a detail. Psalm 31, 5. Jesus would commit his spirit to God. Remember on the cross, just before he gave up his last breath. Unto you, God, he gave up his spirit. Psalm 68, 18, Jesus would ascend to heaven. And Psalm 69, 21, Jesus would be given vinegar for his thirst. Jesus Christ fulfilled so many prophecies concerning his birth, life, ministry, and death, and resurrection. These fulfilled prophecies could not have been manufactured in any way. They could have only been fulfilled by the one who is sovereign over all creation. That is God. These fulfilled prophecies help to give trust, hope, security, assurance, faith, encouragement, and joy to all who read and understand them. These prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus give you hope and life as you trust in him. I'm going to post this in the uh, chat room. By the way, just ignore the last next to last verse where it says he was God incarnate. That is not true. That was never prophesied. That was never foretold. So I'm going to take a little moment and get back with you for a final a final word. By the way, you're listening to Enlightenment Radio, home of the mystical, mysticalvoyage.com. Get our app on Android and Apple. We will conclude momentarily.
Okay, I had one person in the chat room said, am I late today? I'm sorry for the time change here in the U.S. We're going to consider whether to change the time we broadcast from from now on. Um, that just means I come on an hour later. I stay up a little later. I don't mind. I love you all. I want you to hear the word. I want you to especially hear this song. I'm going to close out tonight. But next week, we're going to get into more into the last week of Jesus Christ's life. All the myths. Did he, did he really partake of the Passover meal? Did he enter Jerusalem once or twice? Did the fig trees really die instantly? Did he really say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No, he didn't. Was his ministry three years? No, it was one year. I'm going to dispel all these myths, and we're going to accurately teach the last week of Jesus Christ's life like you've never heard it before, I guarantee you. Please listen to each teaching. So I'm going to end tonight with a song. Starts off with a lot of music. But I think you'll appreciate it. It's a wonderful, beautiful song. How shall I say? Praising the Lord. And it's a great song by Phil Driscoll called Jesus, What a Wonder You Are. This is your mystic guide signing off for the night. God bless you all. Thank you for getting up earlier than normal. And we'll see what we can do about the following weeks. God bless and good night.
Wonder, wonder, 